Good evening, everybody. If everyone can take your seats, uh, we are going to begin. It is just such a privilege and a joy to have you all here, and a privilege and a joy to have Micha here for his 14th time at Temple Emmanuel. Micha, thank you. Okay, great. I'll just. Good evening. So this is what I told my wife today. I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up, okay? So I, I, I came to the States from Israel on Friday. I was in Washington, D.C., and then I had a lecture in, 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 in the New York. And now I'm here. And my wife asked me, so when are you coming home? And I told her, I think I'm at home. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I'm not kidding. I actually, Israel is home. I'm coming. I'm not going to stay here. Don't worry. I'll be I'm leaving tomorrow. But it's really, really nice to be here. Temple Emmanuel for me is my home away from home. Thank you very much. So I'm going to think out loud about three things about post-elections in Israel. One, how is it that BB always wins? It's a big question. I want to try to think about this question briefly. Question number two, why are elections so divisive lately? In Israel, in the US, in Brazil, in England, why is it? And the third part of my talk tonight is going to be about can we cure this and what's happening in Israel, in my life, in Ein Prat, in Israel. By the way, I have a graduate of Ein Prat here, Adam. Yes. Um, what, what can be happening in Israel in order to try to cure this divide? We're going to try to do this and leave room for Q&A. I hope we'll be able to do all of this. Let's start with question number one. Why is it that Netanyahu always wins? So first of all, Netanyahu is an enigma. Netanyahu, but I want to offer three quick observations about Netanyahu, not because Netanyahu is interesting where I think he is interesting, but the fact that he gets elected again and again, not, I don't want to ask what it says about Netanyahu, I want to ask what does it say about Israel, Israelis, and Israeliness. Well, let's start with what Netanyahu is selling subconsciously to Israelis. Netanyahu was speaking for many, many years about Iran as a problem and Israel has to stop Iran and there was a sense that eventually we'll send our aircrafts and we'll go and we'll bomb the nuclear reactors in Iran. Netanyahu decided not to do that. In 2014, in Souk Eitan, when Israel was in war in Gaza, there was a very popular voice in Israel led by Avigdor Lieberman and Naftali Bennett. Israel should invade Gaza. Israel should conquer Gaza. Netanyahu decided not to do that. Against the will of many people, against the rage of the masses, he decided not to do that. He's very careful when it comes to using force He's very careful when it comes to war. 
2014, 2015 was also the year where John Kerry was assigned, he built this very ambitious peace plan, was supposed to lead to a peace treaty, a new Middle East, serious concessions by Israel. Netanyahu decided not to join the peace journey with John Kerry. You see, Netanyahu says no to war and he says no to peace. That is why Israelis vote for Bibi. <laughs> because Bibi is seen as a very careful leader. Where he doesn't jump into war and he does also doesn't jump into peace journeys. And this is the power of Netanyahu. By the way, many people compare Netanyahu to President Trump. I think it's a false comparison. Trump is pretty impulsive. For the good or bad, he's very impulsive, right? Netanyahu is the opposite. Very careful. And the power of Bibi, Bibi is the status quo candidate. Now this might sound weird, but Israelis vote for the status quo. It sounds weird because you're Americans. And in America, change is an exciting idea. Change is exciting. Change is a charismatic idea. If you think about the history of American elections, Americans always want to change things, right? Clinton was the opposite of Bush, and then Bush was the opposite of Clinton. And then Obama was the complete opposite of Bush, and then Trump is the complete opposite of Barack Obama. American psyche is like, let's change things. You know what Israelis are thinking? Let's not change things. I'll tell you why. Because when you're living in Israel and drinking coffee in your favorite place in Emek Refaim Street in Jerusalem, and you're reading the newspaper and you see Yemen collapsed and Libya collapsed, and there's chaos in Iraq and Syria is in hell, and that's the neighborhood you live in, that's the Middle East, and you're drinking coffee and everything is quiet and stable. You know what you're saying to yourself? I don't want to change anything. I want more of this. And Netanyahu, he says, vote for me and nothing will change. <laughs> you're voting for me is signing up for this. For Americans, many times, change is exciting. In the Middle East, when you're living in an island of stability, change is terrifying. So that's one reason for Netanyahu's power. That's one reason why Israelis feel comfortable to vote for Bibi. Vote for Bibi is a vote for the status quo. And you have to, underst to, to understand Israel to realize why that is, a, that is a charismatic idea. The second piece, Bibi is a, Netanyahu is a window into Israeliness, is because... Well, I have to think about, there was a person called Arthur Finkelstein, which taught Israelis a great lesson in politics. He was an advisor from here, from the United States, that came to Israel, and he advised many Israeli politicians. And he taught many Israelis something about, when you, Israelis get a questionnaire, what, what's the question that's going to predict what the Israelis are going to vote for? 
And this might not be an Israeli phenomenon. This might be a universal phenomenon we're going to say now. Questions regarding policy do not predict your vote. Let's say you're saying, I'm for uh, gay marriage, the candidate's for gay marriage, therefore you're going to vote for the candidate. Well, if there's resemblance in policy, that doesn't predict, because people don't vote for the person that represents what you believe in policy-wise anymore. You know what's a question that predicts who you're going to vote for? The following question. Is the candidate someone like you? Which means we don't vote for policies. What do we vote for? We vote for ourselves. It's the politics of identity that's replacing the politics of ideology and the politics of policy. So it's weird that people are voting for themselves and voting for Bibi Netanyahu. Netanyahu is a house in Caesarea. I don't know how to explain what that means for Israelis. It means, it means he's very different than his voters. <laughs> Netanyahu owns a newspaper. Most Israelis <laughs> don't own a newspaper. Netanyahu has been prime minister for close to 13 years. Netanyahu is very different than his voters, and yet, when they vote for him, they feel like they're voting for themselves. How is that possible? This is the Netanyahu paradox. This is how it could be explained. The coalition of the Netanyahu voters is con it has four main groups in it. There's four main groups. By the way, everything I'll be saying now is broad generalizations. Okay? I hope no one will be offended. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because I know this is on tape. That's why I'm saying this. Okay, not because of you. It's, I'm just saying it's, it's broad. And obviously these are broad strokes and not everyone is, fits into these categories. But in very broad strokes, there's four groups where Netanyahu is admired. One is Russian immigrants and descendants of Russian immigrants. Among the Russian-speaking Israeli community, Netanyahu is admired. Not all Russians. But most of them, many of them. A second group, religious Israelis. Among religious Zionists, they admire Netanyahu. That's a group. Another group, again, this is a broad generalization, Mizrahi Masorti Israelis, Sephardi Israelis. They're the descendant of people that came from Arab-speaking countries. Not all of them but Netanyahu is admired in those communities. There's another community, by the way. It's a smaller community, but it has importance. It's the old school Jabutinsky supporters, Cherut supporters, Revisionist supporters. It's a kind of group or a clan where everyone claims he had a grandfather or uncle that was on the boat with Begin when it was bombed. You know, everyone now is, you know, Hamishpacha So they're also very big Netanyahu fans. It's a small group, it's an important group. Now I have a question. Wow, all these groups are the Netanyahu coalition. And I have a question. What do they have in common? And the answer is nothing. You see, Russian Israelis, again, his generalization, have a tendency to be very secular and many times atheists. What do they have in common with Messianic religious Zionists? And what do they happen with easygoing, loosely traditional Sephardi Jews? What do they have in common? Nothing besides one thing. They all love Bibi. So 
what did they really have in common? If we dig deeper, this is an insight into Israeliness. What they have in common is that they all feel like they are outsiders. They all feel like they never really arrived. They all feel like they're rejected by... I don't know how to say this, like, by Israel. There's a sense that there's an Israel out there, which is the real Israel, which are the elites, which are the establishment, which were always there, and they never accepted us, and they always reject us. So here's a question. That's the only thing these groups have in common. And Netanyahu says to them, I'm like you, which means Netanyahu's ticket is that he is the outsider, and therefore, a vote for Netanyahu is a vote for yourself. Which takes me to the next question. How can Bibi be the outsider? With the house in Caesarea and owning a newspaper and being prime minister 13 years, the, how is it that he is the outsider? Well, the answer is Bibi effectively is for many years being criticized all day, every day by the group that the Bibi coalition sees as the Israeli establishment of the Israeli elite. And the more they criticize Bibi, the more they strengthen Bibi's case. You see, Bibi has one campaign. And that campaign that gets Bibi elected is the campaign that's against Bibi. This is the paradox. All the money, energy, that's all that goes against Bibi, that's makes Bibi's case. He goes to his base and what does he say? You see they're attacking me? You see that they don't like me? You see that they're rejecting me? What's the subtext? Just like they're rejecting you. Which means a vote for me is a vote for you. I don't know, which martial arts is it that you take the energy of your enemy and you... What? Aikido. You practice? Okay. And it's, like an, it's like an Aikido move. Where all the energy against Bibi is the energy that gets Bibi elected again and again. A few years ago in 2015, I shared this once in, with some of you, a um, friend of mine that doesn't like Netanyahu at all, doesn't like his policies or his personality. I call him up the day after the elections, who do you vote for? He said, Bibi. <laughs> I said, why do you vote for Bibi? He says to me, because screw them. That's why. <laughs> so that sentiment, the sense that there is a them there. In Israel, there is more the majority of Israelis experience themselves as outsiders. And this is why the, this is like these two insights into Bibi, I think, are insights into Israeliness. The fact that he's a status quo candidate and the fact that he's the outsider. But I think there is another aspect here, and there is also the psychological aspect. I think Bibi is not only manipulating his outsiderness, I think he experiences himself as an outsider. And that has nothing, that has everything to do with Israel in the 50s. Netanyahu is the son of Ben Sion Netanyahu, a prominent historian that didn't get tenure and didn't get a job in Hebrew University. And according to his narrative, why didn't he get accepted to Hebrew University? Why? Because the Ben-Gurion, the Mapai, the left-wing establishment, made sure he won't get tenure. And Bibi was so 
not Bibi, sorry. Ben Zion, Netanyahu, was so offended. This is an ardent Zionist. This is a lover of Israel. But he was so offended that he left Israel and moved here to Philadelphia. So can you imagine how offended he was and how rejected he felt? He was so rejected that he left Israel. And Bibi is raised by a father that feels like they rejected us. And this is what Bibi's breathes into his psyche throughout his childhood, that we are the outsiders. We are the ultimate outsiders. You see, and obviously, no matter what, as we know, what happens to us in childhood, there are some psychologists here, is more important than what happens to us our whole life. If someone, when he's a child or she's a child, has no friends, no matter how popular you'll be, you'll be a rock star, you'll still feel like no one likes you. Because childhood is always more powerful, right? Netanyahu, that's raised by, in a family of persecuted outsiders in their own narrative. Everything that happens to him his rest of his life, he still feels like they rejected us. What I'm trying to argue on a psychological level, when Bibi radiates outsiderness in order to create the coalition that votes for him, it's not only a cynical move, it has psychological depth to it. It works because it comes from within. But there is another piece to the psychology of Bibi. Netanyahu is not only the son of Ben Sion Netanyahu, he's also the brother of who? Of Yoni Netanyahu. Now there isn't, there isn't a greater insider, the ultimate poster boy of Israeliness, the ultimate Israeli hero. Then Yoni Netanyahu, the hero of Entebbe. So this is where it gets interesting. The son of the ultimate outsider and the brother of the ultimate insider. See, if I would ever write a book about Netanyahu, I'm not going to write a book about Netanyahu, but I had a fantasy. Actually, Someone that wrote a book of Netanyahu, I gave him advice, and he didn't take my advice. So I'll just share it with you, just to get out of my system, okay? <laughs> just the opening scene of the biography of Netanyahu needs to look like this. Netanyahu is an MIT. When he gets the news of the raid on Entebbe, he gets the news from the military that Yoni his beloved, admired brother, died. Now, Bibi has a tough job. What's his job? He has to go and tell the parents. Parents live in Philly, a little bit next to Philadelphia. What does he do? Seven-hour drive from, from seven-hour drive. During those seven hours, he's in a world where, this is how he described it once, during those, the longest drive of my life, Bibi says, I didn't have a brother, my parents still had a son. Those seven hours, the hours where he's in between his brother and his father, that's Netanyahu's story. To be between the, how's that as the opening of a book? <laughs> he should have done it, right? So, 
being trapped between your brother and your father, between being the ultimate Israeli or the rejected Israeli, in some way that's the baby story. Because he has the confidence of an insider and the charisma of the outsider. And he radiates outsiderness. So, if you want to understand why baby rins for many reasons, but if I want to nail it down to two observations that will help you understand through the Israeli elections, something about the psyche of Israeliness. This is where it is, the admiration of the status quo and the charisma of the outsider. That's part one of my lecture tonight. I won't open it now, right for questions, right? I'll, okay, Rabbi, okay. The second question I want to ask tonight is, by the way, part one has nothing to do if we like Bibi or not like Bibi. It's just a question of what can we learn about Israel through the constant re-election of Netanyahu. There's more to learn, but I want to share, to share that. Well, this, these elections, I, I really suffered through these elections, and many Israelis suffered because it was, first of all, the, ar the arguments weren't about ideas, they weren't about policies, they weren't about ideologies. It was always personal, always tribal, and almost always disgusting. It was a painful, dirty, low, low election. Americans probably can't understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's a particular Israeli phenomenon. But maybe you could sympathize with, with, from the outside, with what we went through. And seriously, the problem is that we had such a low, I don't even offer, I want you to start with the, the examples. Really low, really filthy. It was as, it never got so low. And as a result, we're more divided than we were. We're less united, we're less connected. And now, Great Britain is going through something very similar, where the two tribes, pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, they despise each other, staring families apart. In England, if you're for Brexit, and you have a family member that's, that was against Brexit, they, many times they don't talk to each other. Politics is dividing, is tearing communities apart and families apart. And Brazil is going through something similar. And all over the world, we see in many countries, countries are more divided than ever. And we have to ask ourselves, is it a coincidence that all this is happening at the same time? That the political conversation is collapsing, that countries are more divided? Is it a coincidence? Or maybe it's not a unique story to Israel or a unique story to America. Maybe there's something bigger going on here. So I would like to think about this from a historical point of view and then from a contemporary point of view. I'll start very briefly with history. Um, unity is a bit, has, in, a, in a deep sense is the challenge of the Bible. What is the book of Bereshit about? What is the book of Genesis about? It's a book about a family that no one there really got along. It's a story about a dysfunctional family. That's the story of Genesis. That's the story of Bereshit. But where did that dysfunctional family, where, the fa where all the brothers hated one brother, 
Which brother did they hate? Yosef. And they decide to kill him, and then they change their mind. Instead of killing him, let's sell him. And they thought that's how they're getting rid of this brother, of Yosef, that they didn't like, because they envied him. They didn't like him. But as a result of selling Yosef, Yosef found himself, where did he find himself? In Egypt. He rose to power. His family came, bowed down in front of him, and he told them, okay, stay here in Egypt. I'll take care of you in Egypt. And they stay in Egypt, and the book of Genesis is over. The book of Genesis ends in exile. And the reason for exile, the reason why they couldn't stay in Israel was because of civil war. Was because brothers couldn't get along with each other. I'm fast forwarding, they leave Egypt, they enter Israel, and only after a few decades, they split into two kingdoms. Which kingdoms? Israel and Judah. And they start fighting and killing each other and weakening each other. Eventually, the Assyrians come and they take the 10 tribes of Israel and they exile them. It's the same story all over again. Exile comes because we can't get along with each other. And then Yehuda stays isolated. Eventually, the Babylonians come, crush Yehuda, and now they're in exile. The end, end of story. Then there's the second temple. It's built. The story of the second temple is very long. I just want to focus on one moment. When the Romans came to attack Jerusalem in the end of the second temple, they come in the year 67. By the way, 60s catch 67. I hope you're going to buy the book, by the way. <laughs> just, just saying, just saying. <laughs> so you're 60, but this is really not, not, this is 67. They come and they start by conquering the Romans, um, the, um, the, the Galilee. And then they're going to take Jerusalem. And for many reasons, they take their time. There's some politics happening in Rome. It takes them at least three years to go to Jerusalem. But Josephus, the historian, one of the historians of the time, said that somebody told the Romans, listen, it's okay, take your time, because our intelligence tells us that the Jews inside Jerusalem are killing each other. So we don't have to attack Jerusalem. If we wait, what will happen? They will tear each other apart. And historically, it's true. The rebels against the Romans were fighting and killing each other. So you ask yourself, okay, that's a story of the second temple. There was a person called Yohanan Migush Chalav. And there was Shimon Bar And they were both anti-Romans. But if there was one group that they hated more than the Romans, it was who? The other group. And they were killing each other. And burning each other's food when they're under siege. So this is a, this is a pathology that we have. Now I want to fast forward 2,000 years to our war of independence in Israel. And the Etzel Begin's group managed to smuggle a boat filled with weapons to Palestine. And this is a complicated story. I'm not going to make it complicated because it's, there's another point here. But Ben-Gurion thought it's not a good idea that the Etzel have their own weapons. So what did he do? What is this boat called, by the way? The Altalena, which is named after Jabotinsky's pin name, Altalena, which is called the seesaw, by the way, in Russian. 
Seesaw is not there. Yeah. So Ben Gurion makes gives him. It's, it's more complicated when describing it. Ben Gurion gives the order to 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 shoot and to bomb the boats. And Begin soldiers, some of them die. I think sixteen of them, if I'm if I'm if I'm accurate. I hope I'm accurate. Now, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen after Mapai, Ben Gurion's group, shoots at the boat of the Begin's group? What's going to happen now? What do you expect is going to happen? Begin's group is going to retaliate. Then Ben Gurion's group is going to retaliate back. Very quickly, where are we? In the middle of civil war, and instead of fighting the war of independence, we're in the middle of a civil war, which means Jewish history was supposed to repeat itself. But it didn't. Why didn't it repeat itself? Because Begin decided not to. When Begin said, no one shoots back. And in his words, lo achim. There won't be civil war, a war of brothers. We decided to, he didn't only turn his back to civil war, he turned his back to Jewish history. To the pathology of Jewish history. Because every time he fought each other, we went to exile, we returned to exile because of one person that decided this time we're not going to fight each other. That's the greatness of that story, the greatness of Menachem Begin. Now this story creates an ethos, not only this story, the ethos, that this time it's about unity, this time it's about solidarity, we won't agree with each other, but we still fight for each other and not against each other. And this unity was tested twice in Israeli history. Once in 1982. What happens in 1982? The first Lebanon War. Now Israel goes to war in Lebanon, and this is a war that most Israelis throughout the war don't approve of. They're against this war. And the more the war continues, the more Israelis are protesting against this war. And the interesting thing is, the generals, the commanders, and the soldiers, many of them were left-wing socialist kibbutzniking. Part of the group that hates the war. And they are fighting in that war. Dying in that war. When they go to Miluim, how do you say Miluim? Reserves. So as civilians, they're protesting against the war, and then they get on uniform, and they're fighting in the war that as civilians, they were protesting. This is a great moment of Israeli solidarity. We were arguing, we were disagreeing, but we were fighting for each other and not against each other. It was a great moment of proving that Jews can change, that we can turn our back to the, to the pathology of the first temple, the pathology of the second temple, that the third temple won't be the same. Another great moment we had was in 2005. What happens in 2005? This engagement from Gaza. Israeli government makes a decision to evacuate 8,500 Jews from their homes and to uh, crush 18 communities. And... This time, 
many of the commanders and the soldiers are from the messianic brand of religious Zionism, and they see evacuation of Jews from their homes as a sin. They're against it. They're protesting against it. Everyone was expecting all these soldiers to disobey orders, all these soldiers maybe to turn their guns on, their, on, on other soldiers, or at least to join their protesters. It happened maybe two, three times. It didn't really happen on a large scale. Because just like the left fought in a war, they didn't support the right led an evacuation that they were against. These are great moments of Israeliness. Proof that we can escape the pathology of Jews. That we can overcome our tendency to fight against each other and to fight for each other and with each other. I, a question I am asking lately, seeing how Israel is becoming more and more tribal, more and more divided, is this great asset of Israel under attack today. Israel has three strategic assets. One is Dimona. When I say Dimona, what do I mean? According to foreign... <laughs> sources, Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has nuclear bombs. That's quite an advantage. Two, our strategic relationship with the United States of America. And three, and I think it's more important, our sense of unity, that we can disagree and yet we'll never fall into civil war. Our unity, or what Ben-Gurion called mamlachtiyut, that our loyalty to the country is greater than our loyalty to a specific ideology or a specific tribe that it was established by Begin, and that was what took us forward till now. That is exactly what is under attack all around the world and in Israel. I just want to show that Israel has a very unique flavor considering the tendency of Jews to forget how, how important unity is. Because when we lose our unity, we lose our country. That's our history. And when we built our unity in 48, that's when we were back in our country. But this story has a technological piece to it. And I'm moving now from the history to the present. It might not be a coincidence that all around the world we are losing our solidarity. That we're becoming more tribal. That we're starting to hate each other. And to be more loyal to our specific ideology, to our specific tribe, and not to the larger story. And that has everything to do with, think, if you ask, okay, what happened the past 10 years? That simultaneously so many countries are losing their unity. And the conversation is deteriorating. What happened the past 10 years? What happened? So maybe Marshall McLuhan was right. Marshall McLuhan argued already in the 80s that the great changes in history are not when ideas change, it's when the medium changes. I used, I'm like a Hegelian. I believe that ideas mean something. Like the greatest ideas of history are the birth of like monotheism, a new idea, humanism, feminism, Marxism. Like a new idea comes and ideas have power and they change the world. McLuhan argues, no, that's not what really happens. When they invented the radio, the world changed. 
The television, the world changed. The print, the world changed. It's not about the message, it's only about the medium, or the way Marshall McLuhan put it eloquently, the medium is the message. Because argument is that the, we have a naive understanding of the medium, it's like something like neutral, and you have an idea, and I could use a microphone to say my idea, and I could use the radio, I'd be interviewed in the radio and express the idea, write an article or a post in Facebook. The medium is neutral. What matters is the idea. McLuhan argues, no, it's the other way around. The medium shapes the idea. It changes the idea. And if McLuhan is right, and our conversations now immigrated to cyberspace, to social media, social media is not where we're expressing our ideas. Social media is changing our conversation. And it's changing the nature of our ideas. And to understand this, I wanted to share a few important changes that, that, that started happening as a result of social media. One, there's a, Israeli, there's a book, an Israeli writer called Yuval Dror, which articulated the following way. He says, for the past roughly 10 years, we have a new economy. And it's what many people call, there's a, a scholar from Colombia called Tim Ru, the attention economy. What is the attention economy? There's a new resource in the world which is called human attention. It's worth money. How is it worth money? What's the business model of Facebook and Google? What's their business model? Where they make money off? This is how it works. They take our attention, they package it, they sell it to other companies, and they make money off our attention through ads. We actually give them two things when we're glued to Facebook and Google. One thing, we give them our information. We have a naive understanding of Google. We go into Google and we learn about the world. What's really happening economically is that we're teaching our world, our internal world. We're teaching Google. When I say Google, it's not like Sergey Brin is out there, oh, Micha, that's where he likes to go? It's the algorithm. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but it's the algorithm <laughs> that's learning. And same thing with Facebook. You think you're, you expose yourself to new ideas. No, you're exposing yourself. Your inner world is exposed and everything you do, they learn. And so you're giving your information to this surveillance machine and you're giving your attention and your attention and your information is repackaged and sold. So which means that the more time we spend on Facebook, Google, the more money they make. Now the interesting thing is that today Facebook and Google are worth much more than all the oil companies. What does that mean? That the resource that's called oil is cheaper than the resource called human attention. Now what happens when attention has economic value? It's new. Now the competition between the big companies is what? Who can grab our attention? As Sergey Brin says, we have, two real we have two real competitors, and that is Facebook and sleep. <laughs> because what is sleeping? It's a bad thing. If attention is a resource, sleeping is bad because it limits that attention. Many people awake more hours. By the way, they're successful. People sleep less. Young people sleep less because of screens. So it's working. It's a good thing. It's working. I'm cynical, by the way, if not, I'm 
So you ask, okay, now what happens? Now what happens? What happens when attention has suddenly economic value in a civilization that never thought it has cultural value? When I say cultural value, Western people never thought that human attention has value, has cultural value. Buddhists, for example, think that attention, where you put your attention, that's very important. Western people never thought about that. I think part of Jewish tradition, Shabbat, what is Shabbat about? It's about locating your attention where you are now. Okay? That trains your mind. Attention has value. But Western civilization that never gave attention cultural value and suddenly gives attention economic value, what does that asymmetry mean? What has no cultural value and a lot of economic value, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means, this asymmetry. When Cortes and the Spanish conquerors came to Central America and South America, the legend says when they started finding all the gold and putting the gold on their boats and taking it back to Spain, the legend says that the local people were looking at them and they couldn't understand why these Europeans are obsessed with that yellow material. See, it's very easy to rob a civilization from something valuable if they don't think it's valuable. If we don't think attention has value, it's very easy for the big corporates to come and take it from us. Because it's very easy to, to, to take something away from someone when they don't value it. Now this has psychological meaning and implications. It also has political implications. Because here's another important piece. If the more we're glued to screens, the more money these companies make. So what are they trying to do? If that's their business model, what are they trying to do? I'm sure I'm not saying anything really new here, but what are they trying to do? If attention means money, if the more we're glued to screens, the more money they make. So what are they trying to do? Figure out how to glue us to screens, how to get us addicted, how to turn our habits into addictions. So every, any free moment you have will be on the screen. One of the things they figured out about us is something that some psychologists already know, is that we love our own worldview. We love our own ideas. What is that tendency called? Confirmation bias. Why do we love our own ideas? For the same reason we love our children. Because they're ours. They're our sweet ideas are sweet opinions. And a lot of researchers learn about this. You go to a lecture and somebody says in, your, in the lecture, everything you think anyway, you think it's a great lecture. <laughs> and if someone says voices, opinions that you disagree with, you feel uncomfortable. You don't like that lecture. We don't like those books. We don't like it when we read or exposed to opinions that are different than ourselves. Now that is human nature. Democracy has to overcome human nature to have curiosity for difference. Okay, you're liberal, but maybe Republicans are interesting, maybe. You're right-wing, maybe liberals thought of something smart to say. Yes, so that democracies have to overcome this with the power of curiosity, which is great power. But we have a tendency to like our own views. Now, if Facebook or Google, if the algorithm has to figure out how to get you close to the screen, and they know we have that weakness. We love our own views. So what are we going to be fed 
through Google and especially through Facebook, what are we going to be fed? Our own views back to us. So the posts you're going to be reading are views you have just by someone else. The videos you're going to be getting, the algorithm figured, figured this out. Which means after a while on Facebook, again and again, what do you have radiating back to you? Yourselves, your own views. What happens after a few months of being trapped, this is what Eli Fraser called, in a filter bubble, where you're always exposed to your own views again and again? Well, don't forget what brainwashing does. What is brainwashing? Like a fascist party wants to, wants to, wants to brainwash you. What does it do? It's something very simple. It takes one message, repeats it again and again and again and again. That's what Facebook does. It takes a message, repeats it back to you again and again. Just, it's not a foreign message invading your mind and capturing your awareness. It's what's, those, what's that a message? It's your own message. You're brainwashing yourself. Or as, this is what happens. Or as Eli Fraser, the first, research, the first person to notice this in 2013, he calls it auto-propaganda. I think it's a great term, auto-propaganda. Now, why is this important? We all have views many times. We're not certain about them. We're skeptical about our own views. After a while on Facebook, what happens? You lose your uncertainty. It's a machine where you're trapped in your own views. It turns uncertainty into radical certainty. And then what happens, I had a question, when you're in a, filter, a liberal filter bubble and you're so certain, and you meet someone from a conservative filter bubble and also they're so certain, what's going to happen when you meet? You're going to look at each other and what are you going to see? <laughs> you're going to see something you can't even understand. You think it's so weird that they, you can't even understand. Now this is happening in democracies all over the world. We're social. Now, there's another element to this, and that is that the algorithm of Google and face, of, of Facebook realizes that what emotion creates most engagement and attaches you closest to the screen? What emotion do you think is emotion that, that makes that has more glue to it? What's the emotion that has most glue? Love, optimism, hope, or anger? What emotion do you think has more, makes us more engaged? So because anger makes us more engaged and the business model is the more you're engaged, the more money they make. So what are the posts we're going to see on our feed in larger proportion? Posts that not only say things that I believe in, they'll say them with rage. Have you ever noticed lately that everyone is angry? Everyone is angry. This anger is manufactured by algorithms. We're in filter bubbles filled with rage. I want to put this together for a minute. I want to put this together just for a minute. Imagine, I don't know, there's a word in Hebrew I want to say, reshut rabim the public space. Okay, let's say Facebook is the new public space. It's where people meet and exchange ideas. There's only one problem with this new public space. It's not public, it's privately owned. So the public space is owned privately. And by the way, he's 35. I mean, it's owned privately. 
So at the pub, you go to a public space, you're actually in someone's house. You're in a, you're a public space that's owned privately. And imagine, okay, so where we meet and exchange ideas is public, but it's actually owned. And what happens if the people who own the public space make more money if the conversations are more heated? Because you're more engaged and more glued. Would that change the nature of the public space? Probably. And what if they make more money if you're more angry? That is where we are now. And I want to say something. I'm not a Luddite. I don't think we can go and break technology and stop technology and destroy Facebook. No, I'm not. It's impossible. We can't stop technological progress. But think about what happened after the Industrial Revolution. After the Industrial Revolution, there was a revolution, technological revolution, and a lot of bad things happened. Kids were working in factories in England. They were eight years old. People were working 16 hours a day. People were breathing in smoke. It took time until there were more regulation and new laws. And suddenly, there's a minimum wage. And children can't work. And you can't work more than a certain amount of hours a day. It took time between the Industrial Revolution until society learned how to deal and balance and regulate the Industrial Revolution. I think that's where we are today. There's a digital revolution, and in a few years, there'll be regulation and social norms, and we'll learn the value of face-to-face -face again. We'll learn the value of paying attention again. We'll learn that a lot of the information is fake news. We'll learn that Facebook, that we thought, wow, will spread information, the democratization of knowledge and information is also the democratization of this information. We'll learn that and we'll try to fix that, but it will take time. But you know what the problem is? When are we living? Imagine all those people, all those poor people that lived in those years between the Industrial Revolution and all the regulation of the Industrial Revolution. How are their, how do their lives look like? Well, right now we're living in that gap of time. We're seeing the digital revolution and the time that we're trying to fix Eventually, human beings will fix the digital revolution. But I'm saying, let's start now. Because in England, in Brazil, in Israel, in America, we feel like everyone is angry, everyone is divided, something happened. And we're not talking about the main thing that happened. It's not the messages that changed. It's the medium that's changed. Let's start speaking about social media. I don't know what the solutions are. More regulation. Shabbat, paying attention, meditating, spending less than two hours a day on screen. I don't know, but I, all I know is humanity will figure it out in the end. But we're living now, right? And the only way to figure it out is to start talking about it. So when I'm a graduate. We are, in Israel, we just graduated a very filthy campaign and very filthy elections. In America, you're after a terrible election, and I think you're a before. <laughs> Something that might not be, you know, an exchange of curiosity and ideas. <laughs> a way to think about it is like this. Sometime in the middle of the, century, in the, in the, middle of the 20th century, 
They started to create, maybe before, um, the, the food industry changed. And industrialized, industrialized food were created, what we call fast food. And it was a big hit, because you get to have yummy food, very cheap, and very quickly, fast food. After a few years, we realized, oh, there's implications to fast food. What's the implications? A real cri health crisis. Obesity health crisis. Well, we're going through something very similar now. It's not fast food, it's fast communication. And just like there was a health crisis after fast food, there is a political crisis after fast communication and fast truth. Gene Twenge argues there's also, and Sherry Turkle from here from MIT, is it over here, MIT? Wherever? Yeah? Over there, yeah? She argues there's also a psychological crisis as a result of fast communication. And we started learning, hey, maybe it's not healthy to eat fast food all day long. Maybe just once a month or once every two months. Maybe we should regulate. Maybe we should use this differently. Maybe we should start communicating again face-to-face. -face. Maybe we should start valuing, like, slow food is important. You ever hear of the slow food movement? Yeah? How about slow communication? Long conversations, face-to-face, -face, looking in the eye, figuring out the truth. How about slower politics? I don't know, again, how we get there. I think we should start speaking of how we get there because now we're suffering from a crisis, a psychological crisis and a political crisis as a result of quick truth, fast truth, and fast communication. Okay, that was my second piece. Um, am I doing too much tonight? Because the whole history and now the whole technology spiel is like a lot of okay. Now, finally, I just want to say something about Israel today. Israel has an advantage. You know what that is? We're a small country. And you can actually speak face-to-face -to, -face to many people. And when we think about the psychological crisis and the political crisis, we have to start thinking about how can we start curing a society from being you know, trapped in tribes, trapped in filter bubbles, filled with rage and hating each other. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, what we need, I think, in every society, also in England and in America and in Israel, most of the people are not in extreme tribes. Most of the people feel more connected to the greater idea than to their specific tribes. Most people feel like they want to fight for each other and not against each other. The problem is, those people are not the passionate people. The people who believe that America is greater than a divide, that Israel is greater than its tribes, that England is greater than its tribes, usually they are like moderate, soft, mediocre. And here's the problem. All over the world, the majority of the people are at the center, but the majority of the passion is not. Where is the passion? At the extremes. Now here's the biggest question, not how do we maneuver more people to the center where people can understand each other and listen to each other, but how do we attach the passion of the extremists to the people that are in the center? I think that is the greatest challenge we have in democracies. How to create a passionate center. 
I have a lot of reasons to believe that in Israel we have a passionate center that is emerging. A center where people trying to hold on to complicated worldviews that want, when it comes to religion, they want to feel connected to our ancient tradition and they want to be liberal and open-minded at the same time. How does that fit together? We're not really sure, but we're passionate about it. You don't have to have radical certainty to have extreme passion. That's the center. When it comes to the, to the politics, yes, we don't want to control the Palestinians. We don't. The left got it right. We also don't want to be threatened by the Palestinians. And the Middle East is a dangerous place. The right got it right. How do you put this together? That's the center. That's the center. And we can be passionate about it. And I think this is a challenge we have around the world. And this is a challenge I'm trying to deal with in Ain Prat to build a movement of a passionate center. A center where you have a complicated worldview, but making it complicated doesn't mean that you're losing your passion. This is the challenge, I think this is the challenge of the Talmud. The fact that Jews admire a text that's filled with disagreements, and yet we admire the Talmud. This is the challenge of the Bible with many voices, with prophets and priests and kings, and every book says something else, and yet we admire the perplexity and the many voices of the Bible. And the question is, can we do that here today? That is, I think, the challenge Today, in a divided world, the cure is a passionate center. Not to give up on all sides, but to try to build a passionate bridge between the tribes. So, that was, I, this is what I tried to do in this ambitious evening. To go through, what did I do? What was part one? Oh, yeah, BB, yeah. We're post-elections, and these are some the thoughts I came out here to share with you post-elections. What does the fact that Bibi get reelected say about Israelis and Israeliness, that we love status quo and we're ultimate outsiders? Jewish history is filled with the pathology of civil war. Israel managed to overcome that in order to be born. We have to continue to overcome that in order to thrive. And to do that, we need to overcome the challenges of technology and create a passionate center. Thank you so much for coming out and for listening to me. So, Michael, we have some time for some questions. Does anyone have any questions? Okay, uh, we'll take Steve Thompson and then Michael Bowen. I have a question. Do you like questions one at a time, or do you like Yehuda Kurtzer style? Three questions at a time. I'll take one at a time. One at a time. Steve Thompson. Thank you, Mike. It's really been, Michael, it's beautiful, just what you said, and I agree with you. Except there's one thing that I'm concerned about, and I want to know if you feel this way, too, or have thought about it all of this technology and the social media, one of the things that came up during the campaign of the presidential campaign was the influence of the, of the Soviet Union, of Russia, mm. and in, in terms of manipulating the, yes. the social media and taking advantage of the anger and the division and even, in, even yes. in exacerbating it. So do you see that and do you see that still as, as a prominent player? Yes, I mean, once one social media, you see there's the two paradoxes of social media. 
is that it was invented to connect people and it's dividing them. It was connected to inform them and then it spreads fake news and disinformation. So as a result of everything that was supposed to inform us, we less informed. And everything that was supposed to connect us, we're disconnected. This doesn't mean we have to break Facebook. That means we have to think about how to use it in a much smarter way. And once you have, it doesn't connect you and it divides you and it disinforms and informing you. It's very easy for anyone to take advantage of it from within and from outside, like Russians. So, it's a, so the problem, again, is not Russia. It's the medium itself. Yeah, Russia is just using a problem. If, whatever, I don't know what happened there. Yes, but the problem is the medium itself. And that is a wake-up call. We have to think about how do we now, like after the Industrial Revolution, realize, hey, this is good, but it has a lot of bad things. But like, like maybe a, a, softer, a softer example was, I, I, I'm, I'm not young, but I'm, I guess I'm pretty young. And <laughs> even I remember a day, I'll be 45 in November, just so you know. So I'm young, I'm young. So I remember a day, even when I was a kid, when we were on airplanes, and people were smoking in the airplane. And it was okay, because you're in the non-smoking seat, so it's okay. <laughs> you're not feeling the smoke, because you're in the not, because it's a different seat, it's a non-smoking seat. So that's so weird that just yesterday, we were on planes, and it was smoking, and you're in a closed box up in the air, and you can't open the window, I think, to get the air. So, and that was just yesterday. And then something happened. We realize that there is passive smoking. We realize it's dangerous. Less people are smoking. No one smokes in public spaces anymore. And so there was a gap. There was a period of time where smoking became popular. We didn't realize the problems. We didn't react to it. And a whole generation of people lived in that gap. Now we're in that gap. There's screens. Soon there'll be a reaction. We'll know how to deal with it. And we're living in that gap. There's a, heard an Israeli pollster telling about the, the challenges of predicting elections. And he said, you know, in the United States, the problem is people don't tell the truth to the pollsters. He said, in Israel, people tell the truth to the pollsters, but they lie when they get into the ballot box. <laughs> so I want to know, in terms of how Israel, Israelis, you think Israelis really feel about a two-state solution? Maybe not tomorrow, but in, in That's a time. great question. Can I take this to another Israeli paradox? When Israelis, in many polls, are polled, and they say, are you for a territorial compromise? Which means a withdrawal from the West Bank. Not maybe a complete withdrawal, but a certain, a certain compromise. Not what people in the world think is a compromise, like partition of Jerusalem and, and back to the Green Line, but some compromise. Most Israelis say, yeah, we're for a territorial compromise. We ask Israelis, are you for a larger separation between synagogue and state in Israel and robbing the rabbis from their power? Almost all Israelis are for that. There is a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot which says, You should love working and you should hate the rabbinate. Israelis are very machmir, they're Haredi, when it comes to It's nice, there's a mitzvah that Israelis really, really like to keep. Rabbi, I'm sorry, it's just, it's in a, it's in a, it's a thing. So you ask yourself, well, so Israelis want larger separation of synagogue and state. Not complete separation like here, but larger separation. 
territorial compromise. So in the views of Israelis, where are they? Center, maybe center left. We ask other question. How do you identify yourself? 50% right, 35% center, and less than 10% left. So when it comes to identity, Israelis are on the right. When it comes to policy, Israelis are on the center left. If you want to understand Israel, that's where it is. We see ourselves as right-wingers, but in policy, we're more flexible, more center, more left. That's why, by the way, as long as elections are about tribes, which tribe you belong to, Bibi wins. If it's about policy, he loses. That's why Netanyahu will always make it about identity and not about policy. The tragedy here is that the best way to make it about identity, make it about your tribe, is when tribes are fighting each other. Then you feel more tribal here. Miri, um, can you say a word about annexation? Is annexation a worry? Um, ever since I came here, every, everybody's worried about that. Israelis don't think that every promise a politician does two weeks before the elections is something that is uh, policy. Okay. Yes, so let me get some comments from this Yes. Ah, David. Uh, the New York Times and other media have been reporting on Kushner's economic plan. Does that have any substance to it from an Israeli perspective? Would it work? That is, uh, approaching the economic welfare of Palestinians prior to the political future? Or, or is this a non-starter? Uh, well, as an Israel, I, I don't know because this is a question we need to ask Palestinians. And the Palestinians seem to reject this before it even began. So this is a very big question. How will this be played out? So I don't know how it will be played out. There's high chances it will be rejected and it will collapse. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid for many, you know, think, we think in habits, and we're addicted to habits. And one of the habits we have when we think about politics is we think in dichotomies. When it comes to the conflict, many of us are trapped in a false dichotomy, the following false dichotomy. We have only two options. Option number one, to end the conflict. It's to find a way to end the conflict. If the conflict is bad, we should end it. Option number two, Let's manage the conflict, which means not do much about it. Keep things the way they are. Is really? There's no third option? Imagine someone would say, I have a way, a program to end crime. No more crime is bad. We have to end it. And then the opponent is saying, well, we can't end crime, so there's nothing we can do about crime. Let's just keep things the way they are. Really? Or someone says, let's end car accidents because they're bad. And then the alternative is, well, we can't end car accidents. That's naive, so let's not do anything about it. Really? When it comes to car accidents, no one tries to end it, and no one is passive. What do we do? We minimize it. When it comes to crime, we minimize crime. When it comes to conflict, there's a third option. To shrink the conflict. Now, what I'm afraid of is that there were 17 attempts to solve the conflict. They all failed. Every time they failed, it reinforced the false dichotomy. We said, okay, there's nothing we can do. I'm afraid that Trump's plan 
might work. But 17 failed. Why will this succeed? Because it's chai. <laughs> and my, my fear is, I hope it works. I pray to God it works. And maybe it will. But my fear, if it fails, it will only reinforce this. We'll be paralyzed. Oh, there's nothing we can do. So i trying to promote in Israel through the building of a passionate center is, hey, if it doesn't work, let's move to plan B. What's plan B? To shrink this conflict. This time around, let's not assume that if we can't solve the conflict, there is, there is nothing we can do. Let's start thinking about pragmatic small steps that could shrink the conflict even if we can't end it. There was an Israeli, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, there was an Israeli general I spoke to about shrinking the conflict. This is a very smart person from the Israeli intelligence. And he said to me, you know, anyone that thinks that you could solve the conflict probably was never married. <laughs> because when you listen to your lessons you learned from your own life, you realize problems can't be solved, but they could be met, but you could minimize them and you could live with them and you could make those prob problems different. Yes, so I think we're paralyzed because speak, the, the myth of ending the conflict is paralyzing us. And if we fail, there's nothing we can do. Let's stop ending the conflict. <laughs> Bob. Thank you. <clears throat> I listened to what you were saying about why Bibi was elected. And I'm sorry, I could not help but analogize that everything you said, you could change the names, and you have the explanation of why Trump was elected. The ultimate insider who is an outsider, who is rejected by people and appealed to groups who felt that they were disenfranchised or left behind. And I don't want to get into the politics of it, but just the, the analogy here is that this is not an Israeli or an American problem because it's happening in Europe as well. So yeah. where do you see this world going now? <laughs> Again, I think this world could go to a good place if we learn two things, to build a passionate center and to start thinking about how we deal with the medium, not only the message. And the best medium is Micha Goodman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Erev Tov and drive home safely. <laughs>